This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Welcome back to The Wooden O and the Iron Throne, Game of Thrones and Shakespeare. In episode one, we discussed how Shakespeare and George R.R. R. Martin use history. Martin draws on real-world history to inspire his plots, but he also creates a rich fictional history for the world of Westeros, along with detailed individual histories for each character. We see those histories intersect in this scene between Jaime Lannister and Brienne of Tarth, when Jaime describes how his father besieged King's Landing while he was serving as guard to the king. Once again, I came to the king, backing him to surrender. He told me to bring him my father's head. Then he turned to his pyromancer. Burn them all, he said. Burn them in their homes, burn them in their beds. Tell me if your precious Randy commanded you to kill your own father and stand by while thousands of men, women and children burned alive, would you have done it? Would you have kept your oath then? First I killed the pyromancer and then when the king turned to flee I drove my sword into his back. If this is true, why didn't you tell anyone? Why didn't you tell Lord Stark? Stark? You think the Honorable Ned Stark wanted to hear my side? He judged me guilty the moment he set eyes on me. What this scene reveals so powerfully is how history shapes character. Past events shape the present culture and circumstance in which characters find themselves, and that shapes the choices they face and the people they must become. Jamie Lannister didn't choose to be a Kingsguard in a time of rebellion, nor did he choose the king he served. But those circumstances determined the choices he had and the identity he acquired. There it is. That's the look. Seen for 17 years and face after face. You all despise me. Kingslayer. Oathbreaker. Man without honor. We noted in episode one that Jamie Lannister can seem like an evil character at first. But he shows a keen sense of how good and evil operate in a place like Westeros, or like Shakespeare's histories and tragedies. These are worlds where moral agents operate under constraint and circumstances may render every option morally compromised. This point was made starkly in The Broken Man, the episode in which we see Sander Kaglane, the Hound, nursed back to life by Brother Ray, an assassin turned religious leader. A group of men has just threatened to invade Ray's tiny, pacifist community. The Hound urges Ray to fight back, but Ray refuses. 
I'm done with fighting. Even if it's to protect yourself. Violence is a disease. You don't cure a disease by spreading it to more people. You don't cure it by dying either. You are morally opposed to violence, but you are also responsible for protecting people who are threatened by violence. Is there any morally pure option to pursue? This is a dilemma that Jamie Lannister understands, as he articulates to Catelyn Stark. You are no knight. You have forsaken every vow you ever took. So many vows. They make you swear and swear. Defend the king, obey the king, obey your father, protect the innocent, defend the weak. And what if your father despises the king? What if the king massacres the innocent? It's too much. No matter what you do, you're forsaking one vow or another. In this episode, we talk about character, culture, and choice in Shakespeare and in Game of Thrones, and about how those choices become all the more difficult when you're a leader in power trying to play the great game. Welcome to episode two of The Wooden O and the Iron Throne. Uneasy lies the head that wears the crown. In our last episode, we heard from Anton Lesser, who plays the character of Kyburn in Game of Thrones. Kyburn was studying to be a maester when he was expelled from his order for his experiments on living humans. He uses his knowledge of medicine to heal Jamie Lannister's arm and to save the injured Sir Gregor. As hand to Queen Cersei, he also uses his knowledge to blow up the Sept of Baelor, to build the scorpions that kill one of Daenerys Targaryen's dragons, and to poison a young girl from Dorne. But in spite of all that, Lesser says, he didn't find his character simply evil, partly because of Kyburn's backstory and the place he started from. <coughs> what? What's your name, friend? Kyburn. He's a survivor. The first time we see him, He's on a wheel of a cart, he's stretched out, and on his last breath, basically. He starts out having survived. Clearly in the context of that sort of world, you know, we can't really imagine what that's like. In such extreme situations, few of us could perfectly uphold our idealistic moral codes. Your child hasn't got enough food. What happens to your morality, your fancy philosophies, your intellectual complexity, when all that you have to do is find something to put in the mouth of the child that's in your arms? It's just unbearable. But I suspect that you would just do what you needed to do. You won't understand characters and their choices unless you understand their circumstances. That's a central tenet for Shakespeare and for George R.R. R. Martin. Here's Jeff Wilson, preceptor of expository writing at Harvard University and author of Shakespeare and Game of Thrones. For both Shakespeare and Martin, character doesn't exist outside of situation, which means that someone has character, but that is conditioned by the circumstances into which one was born. And so that A.C. Bradley, his great line about in Shakespearean tragedy, character is destiny. Um, 
but in the same time, culture creates character. And so in a lot of Shakespeare's plays, culture is destiny. And I think Shakespeare was extremely interested in the ways that certain social formations, certain social dynamics have a fate to them. And so I, I suppose both Shakespeare and, and Martin uh, knew that good stories come from characters who have had their personality fashioned by the circumstances into which they were born being put into situations in which their personality isn't well-suited for that situation. Some of Shakespeare's and Martin's most powerful stories evolve out of this dynamic that Wilson describes. Imagine, for example, a man whose family and culture instill in him ideals of nobility, honor, and duty. These ideals make him want to serve his country, but equally make it almost unbearable when public service calls for actions he sees as dishonorable. This is the story of Ned Stark and Jon Snow in Game of Thrones, and of Brutus in Shakespeare's play Julius Caesar. Brutus is a senator of the Roman Republic who watches as the military general Julius Caesar gets closer and closer, it seems, to seizing absolute power, which would destroy the Republic and its equitable ideals. Brutus feels bound by duty to defend the Republic, even if that means killing Caesar, who is also his dear friend. Ned Stark, too, feels bound by duty to serve the realm, even at personal cost. Ned's father and brother were murdered when they rode south to King's Landing, and Ned fears that the King's hand, John Aaron, was murdered as well. Nevertheless, when King Robert asks him to serve as the next hand, Ned agrees and rides south, leaving behind his sons and his wife Catelyn in Winterfell. I have no choice. That's what men always say when honor calls. Honor is a defining word for both Ned Stark and Brutus. As Brutus says, I love the name of honor more than I fear death. For Brutus, honor means doing his public duty. But in both stories, we see how notions of honor might also conflict with public duty and the public good. That's the tension between Ned and Robert when they clash over whether to assassinate the pregnant Dothraki queen Daenerys Targaryen whose son could invade Westeros with an army. I want them both dead. You'll dishonor yourself forever if you do this. Honor? I've got seven kingdoms to rule. One king, seven kingdoms. Do you think honor keeps them in line? Do you think it's honor that's keeping the peace? It's fear, fear and blood. Then we're no better than the Mad King. Careful, Ned, careful now. I understand your misgivings, my lord. Truly, I do. It is a terrible thing we must consider, a vile thing. Yet we who presume to rule must sometimes do vile things for the good of the realm. Should the gods grant Daenerys a son, the realm will bleed. Brutus, like Ned, is given a choice to kill a potentially dangerous enemy. As they plan the assassination of Caesar, Brutus's fellow conspirators want Caesar's supporter Mark Antony to be killed as well. If he lives, he might ruin the success of their cause. Brutus refuses, saying that killing Antony will make their course seem too bloody. Brutus's character has been shaped by Roman cultural notions of honor. But those notions don't serve him well during a political coup that demands decisive, pragmatic, and sometimes ruthless action. Brutus's honor makes him want to save the Republic from Caesar's ambition, but it also makes him hate the thought of the vile things required to do so. He agrees to kill Caesar, 
but he refuses to kill Antony. He even permits Antony to make a speech at Caesar's funeral. When did the poor have cried, Caesar hath wept? Ambition should be made of sterner stuff. Yet Brutus says he was ambitious, and Brutus is an honorable man. You all did see that on the Lupercalite, thrice presented him a kingly crown, which he did thrice refuse. Was this ambition? Yet Brutus says he was ambitious, and sure he is an honorable man. Antony, in his funeral oration for Caesar, keeps repeating, Brutus is an honorable man, Brutus is an honorable man. And the more he repeats it, the more it becomes ironized, where you understand that Antony is really trying to make the point that Brutus is the opposite of an honorable man. And Ned Stark, this is how everybody sees him, right? They see that he's a man of honor, but often the word gets applied to him in contexts that similarly ironize it. Hi, I'm Dr. Maria Devlin-McNair. I'm the creator of Shakespeare for All and a fan of Game of Thrones. Robert Baratheon calls Ned an honorable fool. Jamie Lannister in our earlier scene derides the honorable Ned Stark as a man who cannot see when he is wrong. Later in the show, Stannis Baratheon encounters Ned's bastard son, Jon Snow. You're as stubborn as your father, and as honorable. I can imagine no higher praise. I didn't mean it as praise. Honor got your father killed. There's a similar application of the term honor to Ned as to Brutus, but with an ironizing of it. And why is that? It's because Brutus and Ned make kind of similar mistakes. So they're both upright men driven by what they think is their sense of duty, but what they consider that sense to be ends up compromising, ruining everything that they hoped to achieve in the public realm and ultimately destroying themselves. Brutus, striving to keep the conspirators' actions as morally pure as possible allows Antony to live and to speak at Caesar's funeral, a decision that allows Antony to turn the Roman people against the conspirators, drive Brutus out of Rome, defeat his forces in battle, and push Brutus to commit suicide. Ultimately, Brutus's choices helped destroy the Republic he was trying to protect. So it's because Brutus took that step in killing Caesar, but didn't go far enough doing everything politically necessary to make the cause successful, that he ultimately ended up ruining it. And Ned does something similar in the wake of another leader's death when Robert Baratheon dies. King Robert is wounded by a boar, and his counselors know his death is near. Ned also knows that the children of Robert's wife, Cersei Lannister, aren't Robert's true heirs. The children's father is Jaime Lannister. Ned feels bound by honor to preserve the legal integrity of the succession by seating the proper heir, Robert's oldest brother Stannis, on the throne, rather than Cersei's son Joffrey. But what he does is he supports Stannis's claim, but like Brutus, he won't go far enough. He won't throw all possible political power behind Stannis. Ned's character makes him unwilling to use force or violence, even to secure the throne for Stannis. Renly Baratheon begs him to act before Cersei can seize the throne for Joffrey. Strike! Tonight while the castle sleeps. We must get Joffrey away from his mother and into our custody. Protector of the realm or no, he who holds the king holds the kingdom. Every moment you delay gives Cersei another moment to prepare. I will not dishonor Robert's last hours by shedding blood in his halls and dragging frightened children from their beds. There's that term, dishonor. He won't do anything dishonorable. And he doesn't want to shed blood. There's this moment um, 
in the speech where Brutus refuses to kill Antony when he says, we all stand up against the spirit of Caesar and in the spirit of men, there is no blood. Oh, that we could come by Caesar's spirit and not dismember Caesar, but alas, Caesar must bleed for it. He too is deeply uncomfortable with the political reality of shedding blood. So Joffrey ends up being the king instead of Stannis and Ned loses his head for it. So Ned and Brutus are both kind of ultimately compromised and undone by this commitment to a sense of honor that can't stomach uncomfortable political realities. The noble ideals of honor, the uncomfortable demands of politics. This is the central tension for Brutus, for Ned Stark, and for the world of Game of Thrones. The series actually ends by replaying Brutus's dilemma once again, this time through Jon Snow. John became a figure of Julius Caesar in season five, when the men of the Night's Watch stabbed him as a traitor. In season eight, he switches roles and become another figure of Brutus. In Julius Caesar, Brutus's friend Cassius warns him that Caesar will become a tyrant. In the last episode of Game of Thrones, John's friend Tyrion warns him about Daenerys Targaryen. We've just seen Daenerys make King's Landing bleed, as Varys warned Ned that she would. And she grows more powerful and more sure that she is good and right. She believes her destiny is to build a better world for everyone. If you believed that, if you truly believed it, wouldn't you kill whoever stood between you and paradise? I know you love her. Love is the death of duty. You just came up with that. Master Eamon said it a long time ago. Sometimes duty is the death of love. And so now Jon Snow, like Brutus, has to decide what to do about it. Because Brutus loves Caesar. When he's explaining why he killed him, he says, I slew my best lover. I slew my best lover for the good of Rome. Jon Snow talks with Tyrion in this dialogue that he loves Daenerys. But he makes the same decision that Brutus does ultimately. We break the wheel together. You are my queen. Now and always. Now I think this is actually a really perfect ending to the show. I think seeing that parallel between him and Brutus makes you realize that the show hasn't given up on its incredible moral complexity and ambiguity. Even more so because of the analogy internally with another problematic figure in the show, right? Who else was famous for stabbing a Targaryen in the throne room? Jamie Lannister. And he's been reviled for it through the entire show, known as Oathbreaker and Kingslayer, the person who betrayed the king he was sworn to defend. Jon Snow did the same thing, but he's the man with honor. He is the person who wanted to be Ned Stark, and yet he was brought to do the same thing Jaime did. So I think ending the show there was kind of a beautiful way of bringing it to a conclusion without wrapping anything up neatly, while still demanding that we wrestle with difficult moral questions. What does it take to be a good political leader? Does it mean being willing to do things that a good person would hate to do? Time and again, Shakespeare and Martin force us to confront this question. In Game of Thrones, a misguided political choice can feel right. 
This is Ned Stark in season one, when he hears that Sir Gregor Clegane, the mountain, has been burning land and terrorizing farmers in the Riverlands. I charge you to bring the king's justice to the false knight Gregor Clegane and all those who shared in his crimes. I denounce him and detain him. I strip him of all ranks and titles, of all lands and holdings, and sentence him to death. My lord, this, this is a drastic action. It would be better to wait for King Robert's return. Grand Maester Pycelle. My lord. Send a raven to Castle Rock. Inform Tywin Lannister that he has been summoned to court to answer for the crimes of his bannermen. He will arrive within the fortnight or be branded an enemy of the crown and a traitor to the realm. Ned Stark, he attaints and kind of casts out the mountain, um, which seems good. The mountain is hurting the common people, and so this feels like justice, right? Um, at the same time, it while it may be popular with common folks, the way that Caesar was common with popular folks was a populare, um, certainly doesn't help him with the elites. It certainly um, alienates him from the Lannisters, and we're in a pre-war stage, so alienating allies um, when a transition of power is about to happen doesn't seem like a great political answer. Hi, my name's Pete Lucier. I'm a fan of Game of Thrones. I'm also a writer who writes on military culture and foreign policy, and my work's been in the New York Times, the Washington Post, and Foreign Policy Magazine. In Shakespeare's tragedies, too, there's often a split between what feels right and what works well politically. By the end, there's a tragic hero who has our sympathy or admiration, but who is dead, and a politician who alienates us, but who is undeniably effective and alive. Henry V is Shakespeare's most heroic political victor, but the actions that alienate audiences most are often the very things that help Henry secure his victories. In this play, King Henry claims an ancient right to the kingdom of France, and invades with an English army. The French city of Harfleur surrenders to Henry, and he orders his men to treat the citizens mercifully. But this happens after he makes his speech calling on them to surrender, a speech that audiences and performers can find intensely uncomfortable. Look to see the blind and bloody soldier with foul hand defile the locks of your shrill shrieking daughters your fathers taken by the silver beards and their most reverent heads dashed to the walls. Your naked infants spitted upon pikes, whilst the mad mothers, with their howls confused, do break the clouds. What say you? Will you yield? And this avoid? Ultimately, Hal's ability to um, take this city without bloodshed rests upon his ability to make a credible threat. And for that threat to be credible, there has to be this latent threat of violence. There's a theorist named Thomas Schelling who writes about this in, in nuclear strategy, um, that in order for, uh, you know, kind of peace and, and detente between nuclear powers, um, it's as if we have to hold pistols to each other's head. Strategic communication um, has to, in some ways, be fundamentally amoral. It, it has to be backed by these latent threats of violences, and that's actually a measure towards peace. But, you know, I think as, as humans, 
that's that's a difficult proposition. Like we naturally kind of reel at the language that that Hal uses in front of Hal Floor. Um, our moral imaginations have a a level of revulsion at the idea of like large spread war or even worse nuclear war. Um, so these questions of morality, specifically the morality of leaders, um, it makes it difficult for us, I think, to to create moral frameworks with which we can really judge um, whether it's a Shakespeare character or a, a Game of Thrones character. It's it's almost as if we have to to separate out what what is right for leaders versus what's right for, say, us sitting in our living rooms. There is a morality that political leaders have to respect, but it can be difficult to identify what it is, and it may not align with our instinctive emotional responses. Sometimes the wrong political choice might feel right, and the right choice may feel wrong. This is Jon Snow after he has made his political choice about Daenerys. Was it right? What I did? What we did. It doesn't feel right. Shakespeare and Martin's stories suggest that in politics, we can't have it all. So they force the question, what do you really want? A hero or something that works? What made Game of Thrones so unique and so successful, argued one fan, was that it didn't just give us heroes. In a viral article called The Real Reason Fans Hate the Last Season of Game of Thrones, Zainab Tufekci distinguished between two kinds of storytelling. There's psychological storytelling, which focuses on heroic protagonists and relies on viewers getting invested in those characters. But there's also sociological storytelling, which the article defined this way. So um, sociological and institutional storytelling means having characters evolve in response to the broader institutional settings, incentives, and norms that surround them. In sociological storytelling, the characters have personal stories and agency, of course, but those are also greatly shaped by institutions and events around them. That tension between internal stories and desires, psychology and external pressures, institutions, norms, and events was exactly what Game of Thrones showed us for many of its characters, creating rich tapestries of psychology, but also behavior that was neither saintly nor fully evil at any point. Pete Lucier agrees with Tufekci's analysis. What was so great about the first maybe six seasons and then what was so frustrating about the last two that the first six seasons had this courage to, um, to kill off main characters and continue to move, that society kind of moves along. I remember um, one of my seniors in the Marine Corps told me one time this kind of terrifying thought that stuck with me. And he said, the graveyards of the world are full of indispensable people. And he was reminding me that, you know, institutions outlive us, um, that they move on even past what we assume are the main characters. When we watch something like Game of Thrones, I think the device that he uses to um, subvert the safety of the way we watch theatre or film, the way he just willfully just decides to kill the person you've identi identified with for the past three 
<laughs> three weeks or three seasons and just says dead he goes and you go what no you can't do that I think it's amazing because what it does it makes you pay attention in a very specific way you don't know whether the person you think is that is the person taking you through the narrative is going to be the person taking you through the narrative you don't know how long they're going to last this unpredictable mode of storytelling that can take away anyone at any time isn't a common route for films and television shows to take. Most stick with psychological storytelling, concentrating on a few main characters who you know will survive. In Shakespeare's tragedies, you might know that the protagonist will die, but the plays are often still interpreted and performed as psychological stories, with attention and interest focused on that single protagonist. And we become very much caught up in how will this person live or die, and like in some Shakespeare plays, when this person dies, the story is over. When Hamlet dies, that is the end of the play. When Macbeth dies, that is the end of the play. But Game of Thrones suggests a different approach to Shakespeare. We could treat his plays as sociological stories, and this could make a radical difference to what we see in them. When we focus our attention on the single main character, our sympathy tends to follow our attention. And with our sympathy goes our moral admiration, or approval, or forgiveness. We take this character's goals as our goals. We root for him to succeed. And when he fails, politically or morally, we respond to his failures with empathy. We ask what motivated him, what constrained him, and whether we would have done any better. Do other characters get the same generous attention? Think about the play Hamlet. Prince Hamlet believes that his uncle Claudius murdered his father, and he makes it his mission to kill Claudius for revenge. We tend to identify with Hamlet so strongly that our main concern is why Hamlet takes so long to achieve his goal, not whether his goal is the right one to have. But what if we saw Hamlet as a sociological story instead of a psychological one? We might not root for Hamlet to kill Claudius. We might end up rooting for Claudius. Thou stubborn knees. And heart with strings of steel, be soft as sinews of the newborn babe. I was watching um, a production with David Tennant as Hamlet and Patrick Stewart as Claudius, and I was struck by how sympathetic I found Claudius in this production and what an effective ruler. There's a moment when Laertes comes, bursts into the throne room. He's furious that his father has been killed. He blames Claudius. He seems ready to kill him at that moment. And behind him, there's a potential revolt, a rebellion of the Danish people saying, we want to make Laertes king. And we often don't pay a lot of attention to this because we're so focused on Hamlet, right? Laertes is just there to be a foil for Hamlet. But at this moment, it's one of those times when there could be a change in, in rule, potentially. What if this rebellion were successful? And the way that Claudius handles it shows a lot of political astuteness, also personal courage when he confronts Laertes and manages to win him over to his side. And you think, Claudius isn't such a bad ruler. Would it be so bad for Denmark if he just stayed where he was? Would that be the more politically sound move and thus maybe a more moral move for the people of Denmark? Game of Thrones invites us to see that kind of story as being just as important and compelling as the one about the psychology of this one person. It's not hard to see that Shakespeare's heroes are complex, flawed figures. It's a more radical step to see his stories as not having heroes at all, 
to not start off with predeterminations about whose life is important, who warrants our attention, who gets empathy when they fail, and who just gets vilified. Who is a main character of history, and who is someone dispensable on the sidelines? But Game of Thrones can teach us to see stories in a different way. Its narrative style suggests that anyone's story could be the main story, that anyone could step into the spotlight or suddenly leave the stage. And that's part of what makes the show so suspenseful, so unpredictable, and so absolutely addictive. In the next episode, we talk more about why we love Game of Thrones and Shakespeare, and how they got us to love the things we shouldn't love.